Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. Welcome to Knocked Up, the podcast about getting pregnant with Dr. Raylia Liu from Women's Health Melbourne. Today we're talking about genetic testing. I knew you could have blood tests before you started trying to get pregnant to see if you or your partner was a carrier of something, but until recently I had no idea that actually you could test the eggs, the embryos, before implantation. What are we looking for with genetic screening? In IVF, there's genetic testing and genetic screening, and we mean different things by those two words. So I'll, I'll try and talk to you firstly about genetic screening um, of couples before they try and get pregnant, because if we screen couples to see if there's a problem, we don't know if they're carriers of a recessive condition like cystic fibrosis or spinal muscular atrophy. And in fact, we don't test everybody and not every doctor tests every patient for these things. Just quickly, maybe just define what a carrier is. A carrier is someone who's healthy, happy, living their life normally, but in their genes is a mistake. And because we have two copies of every gene, as long as a carrier has one good copy, they can silently carry a copy with a mistake. So it's like blue eyes. Blue eyes are from your parents could be carriers. They won't show that they have blue eyes, but then they have a baby with blue eyes. Kind of that's an example. That's an example of a recessive characteristic as opposed to a recessive recessive disease. So a recessive characteristic means you have to have two copies the same for that characteristic to be shown. And a recessive disease is when one parent has a bad copy of one gene but is healthy because of their other good copy the other parent is in the same situation. So neither, of them... neither of them are ill or, or in any way unwell. No, they're asymptomatic. And then when their egg and sperm meets, the particular egg and the particular sperm that get together both carry that bad copy. And that means that the baby has a bad copy from mum and a bad copy from dad and they don't have a good copy at all. And that's when they have a genetic disease. So what we're saying is... If we're using IVF, can also be for, this is before IVF, we can do genetic screening to see if there's a potential of a disease. Yeah, and so we all carry about five lethal recessive conditions. (laughs) But because they're all different and the likelihood of us getting together with someone with that same condition isn't that high, and even if we do get together with someone with the same condition that we have not every baby's going to have the double whammy because they might get a good one from mum and a bad one from dad or a good one from dad and a bad one from mum or maybe they get the good one from mum and the good one from dad so actually three out of four babies are going to be okay even in carrier parents but more and more we're finding that people in our society are having fewer children and we're less accepting of, of disease 
that results in it. Well, it's not imperfection. I mean, an example is there's been a big government funding initiative announced in this budget called Mackenzie's Mission and and Mackenzie was a baby who had spinal muscular atrophy, which is a genetic condition that is recessive like we were discussing, but it's it's not an imperfection, it's lethal. So she she really was born without standing a chance of survival and um, unfortunately at about seven months, I believe, of life, she passed away. And um, if her parents were to try again naturally, there's a one in four chance that exactly the same thing could happen to another baby. And you can imagine how devastating that might be to a family. I don't think you can imagine, really. Yeah, Yeah. well, it, that used to happen. I mean, it used to happen to those families and they, there was nothing they could do. They could just try again and, yeah. and hopefully might have some healthy children, but they might suffer, you know, multiple babies dying if they were unlucky. Yeah. And um, while it's a one in four chance, those probabilities are what we call individual so they're independent so just because you've had one affected child doesn't mean the next one's going to be normal it's, it's still one in four every time yeah. so that could mean that you've had four children and all four would have them or you could have four children and none would have it yeah and and in terms of modern technology um, there's two ways of trying to help families in that situation but you have to know in advance and and unfortunately even now a lot of families who have recessive genetic conditions find out by having an affected child because we don't have a robust screening process in our country. And Mackenzie's mission, which was announced with the federal budget, is the first step towards the government funding some screening for genetic conditions in our population. But it hasn't been rolled out yet. It's a future initiative. I usually talk to my patients in my practice, depending on their background, um, about genetic screening and what's on offer, but it's not in the standard set of pre-conception uh, kind of government-funded tests yet because um, the government up until now hasn't contributed towards genetic testing or genetic screening. So patients self-fund. And so there are a couple of different ways that they decide to go. Sometimes they decide that they don't want to have screening and that's fine. I find that if you feel as a doctor that you've told people about it and they know, then it's their choice. If they want to pursue this because it's a government kind of funding free zone and patients have to pay for it. And is this a blood test? Is that what it is? Yeah. And so the most cost effective way to screen parents before or future parents is to do a blood test on one of them. Because if one parent is found not to be a carrier for significant issues, then the other parent, by virtue of the fact that the child's definitely getting a good copy of the genes involved from the other parent, doesn't need to be screened in that union. If that parent then went on to have babies in a separate relationship with someone else, you'd have to reconsider that. But that's generally my approach. I tend to screen one of the couple and um, or if I'm having a a patient who's using a sperm donor, the sperm donors are screened and the the patient would be screened as well so they could choose a a donor who is compatible. And um, if I find a patient to be a carrier for a particular condition, then I'll screen their partner for that condition. Okay, so we screen one patient, see what they've got. If there's a concern, then it's worth screening the other patient, the partner. But really this is, it's a blood test. It's not invasive. It's fairly simple, but it gives us an indication, like it doesn't give an indication. It definitely tells us if you are a carrier for something that could affect a child. Well, it, it gives us the best indication because there's still what you call a residual risk. So it looks for all the mutations that we know cause that particular condition, 
but there's always a tiny risk of what's called a de novo mutation, which means a mistake that's made in that individual that's not known to the kind of database of mutations. So even if everything's clear, something could still not go to plan. Yeah, but the risk is really, really low. Um, So we always advise of the residual risk. So whenever you get a report for a genetic screening test, you'll say there's a 99% certainty or something like that, or 99.9. So that's genetic screening blood tests before you even start trying to see what you might be carrying. If it turns out that you're both carrying... What's the next step? Or if there's a dominant condition also. So recessive conditions we're looking for carriers, but dominant conditions are where a parent can be affected and they don't want their child to be affected. So that, as an example, would that be a haemophiliac? So that's, again, even more complicated. <laughs> um, so haemophilia is actually X-linked, so that, that, that affects the X chromosome. That's why boys are more likely to be affected than girls because they only have one copy of the X. It's, again, one of those good copy rescues bad copy situations. Um, no, but, but, but um, a, an example for something dominant that might be a problem might be neurofibromatosis, for example, where you get tumours on, on nerves and, and that can affect people with all kinds of things, cosmetically with vision, with kind of brain function. But would you live to an adult with that? There's different degrees of um, how a disease can affect different people, so it becomes really complicated. So the rest of your genes in your in your system influence how that disease reacts in you. So the parent carrying the dominant gene would probably be asymptomatic? Not necessarily. They're, they're, I have a patient, for example, with neurofibromatosis and we did genetic testing of embryos, which I'll come to, to try and make sure that their child was healthy. He himself wasn't too bad, but he had a brother who had the same condition who was blind in both eyes because of the neurofibromatosis. So even within his own family and within his own sibling kind of group, there was really different expression of that gene. Okay. So what happens next? So where I come into it, and this is the subject of my PhD, so I've got a lot of expertise in <laughs> genetic screening, is, um, yeah, good question. Um, I help couples if they want to test embryos. It's not the only way to make sure you don't have an affected baby if, you, if you're a carrier. You can get pregnant naturally and test a pregnancy at about the 11 to 13 week mark. So that's if both parents are carriers or one parent has the dominant mutation defect, whatever we're calling it, that they want to try naturally and sort of see what happens with fate, they can do so and you can test once the baby is, I don't know, a few few months in? Yeah, 11 to 13 weeks, weeks. yeah. But, you know, there, there's issues with that. So with a dominant condition, the risk is 50-50, so there's quite a high risk that a baby will be affected. With a recessive condition, it's only one in four. With an invasive test, you need to take tissue from the placenta. So the test itself can jeopardise the pregnancy, but it's generally pretty safe. About one in 100 to one in 200 tests will cause a miscarriage. Okay, that, that doesn't sound so safe. Is it, what kind of test is it? So you put a needle into the mum's tummy, into the placenta, and you suck out some of the placental tissue. Okay, and is that similar to the test for Down syndrome? Yeah, so you can test it for anything. So you test that tissue for chromosomes, like for Down syndrome, or for specific genes, which is looking at higher resolution testing of smaller areas of DNA. But certainly we can find out if the baby's a carrier 
at that point or if the baby's affected by the condition. And then if a, if a patient had something like spinal muscular atrophy where the baby was never going to live a normal life and, in fact, wouldn't survive infancy, then um, that parents would be in that difficult situation where they'd have to terminate a pregnancy at the three-month mark. Or go to full term and know what the outcome would be. But it, it gives the parents the information to make an educated decision instead of waiting until the baby's born. Yeah. But in, in my view, a, an even better way of doing things is to make sure that the baby you put back in the uterus is normal. So that's genetic testing? Yeah. So now I'm talking about genetic testing of embryos. Screening is before and testing is also before? Well, testing just means we know what we're looking for. Yep. Not if we might find it. There's no uncertainty. We know what we're looking for and we're going to look for it. Okay. So how do, how do we look for it? So what, what it might involve for a couple who might otherwise be normally fertile is going through an IVF cycle. So that couple who might have conceived naturally yeah, under no, other no circumstances. fertile, there are no problems, it could be any age, they're both, they're just the chances that this combination of people will produce a child with a disease or a problem. Yeah, so generally they do extremely well in IVF because they're not infertile. So the success rates for IVF that are quoted for infertile couples aren't so meaningful to this group of patients because generally they're, they're not infertile. They've got normal eggs, normal sperm. They want to get together naturally. They get good embryo outcomes most of the time. So we make embryos through IVF um, in all the, the ways that we do IVF for infertile couples. So uh, most of the burden of treatment is on the woman um, in that she goes through medications to make the follicles which have the eggs within them grow, an egg collection procedure to collect the eggs, the sperm and the eggs are put together yep. in the lab. It's we a do normal IVF procedure. Yeah, we do use ICSI yep. for this procedure um, because we're looking for... What's ICSI again? ICSI is when we... It's called intracytoplasmic sperm injection, so that's when we inject a single sperm into each egg. So when we're looking to get a really good certain genetic piece of information about an embryo, we don't want to have any contamination from other sperm that might have other DNA combinations other than the sperm that went into the egg. So we use ICSI for fertilising the egg to make sure that there's no chance that other sperm around could contaminate that result. We fertilise the eggs. What happens next? So we culture embryos to the blastocyst stage. When they're about the day three stage, we take them out of the incubator, we make a little tiny laser perforation in the outer layer called the zona pellucida. Insy-wincy little laser zap. And that creates a weak point in the zona, which is the outer shell containing kind of the embryo at this point. And then we put them back in the incubator and we grow them out to day five. And when we look at them on day five, through that incy-wincy little hole in the outer layer, a few cells have kind of crept through and the embryo is starting to hatch. And then we take about five cells from that embryo. That embryo now is a blastocyst. It has about 250 cells and we're taking five of them and we're taking them from the area that's destined to be the placenta. So in terms of kind of comparing the test I was telling you about before in, in early pregnancy, we're testing the same kind of tissue to get the same kind of answer, but we're taking a tiny, tiny number of cells at a much earlier stage. We use the laser beam scalpel to gently dissect those cells 
and we test them while the, the rest of the embryo recovers and is actually frozen. So this sounds absolutely terrifying, but it is on such a minuscule space. Is that what we're... Yeah, so the embryo is itself is at this point not visible to the human eye. Okay. So the, the embryo is tiny and microscopic and this work is just so incredibly technically fine. It takes actually years to train a scientist to be able to do this. Right. It's, yeah. it's incredible work. And then what you do is that you freeze the embryo um, because it takes time to do the test mm -hmm. and the test itself is very complex but um, the embryo goes into the freezer and the test generally takes about 10 days to, to get an answer. Okay. And before we even do the test, to make sure that we're going to get the answer right, we tend to do some studies on the parents and sometimes even studies on siblings or other relatives so that we can look at DNA variations that the embryo is going to have yes. um, that so are inherited. Expression. Yeah, well, we're looking for a particular mutation, but we also want to make sure that we know the environment where that mutation is makes sense. Because what happens is when we're testing such tiny bits of DNA, it's possible that that DNA doesn't amplify and, and grow in the processes that we have to make it detectable. And so to get a, a robust answer, we want to say an example is if the mutation is a house on a street. So think about that as an analogy. So the mutation or the bad gene might be my house on my street uh, in terms of the street being an analogy for the chromosomal area and the genes on either side. But every street is different and every street have different houses. So I want to know not only is that mutation there, but I want to know does it make sense that that mutation should be there if I'm not picking it up. So what I do when I test the relative's DNA is I look at the houses on their street. So this is, this is the source. This is where the mutation came from, from the family line. So I'm looking at what other genes are next to the gene that's a problem. What other houses are next to the houses of, of my, my house on my street? And if I'm seeing in a result that the house that I'm looking for is not there, that's not good enough. I want to know, is the house there and are the other houses surrounding that there? Because if, if my house isn't there but my two next-door neighbours are there, then I think, gee, that's just not amplifying properly. This might be a baby with a problem. So it's very complex. and So it's not just one test, it's a series of tests to work out. That's right, and, and it's... And it's using such a tiny specimen of DNA and we have to amplify it up. So we have to actually make copies of the DNA so that we can test it. And then we have to make sure that before we apply a result by putting an embryo back in a patient that we're so sure that we're right. Does this impact the fetus at all or the embryo? Is there, is there a What are the risks involved? Whenever you test an embryo, there's a risk, but it's a really low risk in good hands and it's going to be operator dependent. So like any technique, there's a learning curve and, you know, using specialised equipment will help. So we use in our lab the very best equipment and we have scientists who are ideally trained for this procedure and we do it all in-house. In our hands... So the nothing's moving anywhere? No. Yeah. And in our hands, the risk still is about 5%. So you still lose about 5% of embryos from testing them. But that's the absolute best yeah. situation. You also can lose embryos to freeze. So whenever you freeze an embryo and warm it, no matter how good it was can have that not every cell survives the thaw. So 
a proportion of the embryo might not survive the thaw and if less than 50% of the embryo survives the thaw, it's unlikely to be a baby. So you can lose embryos just by freezing them and some labs lose more embryos than others. Yeah. So the quality of lab you choose to do your testing is really important in terms of your chance of having a baby. If you didn't go through the genetic testing, is that where miscarriages occur? Is that an often a cause of miscarriage? So we've been talking about recessive conditions. So we've been looking at really the small print and of, of our DNA and looking for a particular gene with a particular problem and talking about stopping people from having a baby with a particular genetic disease. You can do genetic testing of embryos to purely reduce the risk of miscarriage. And that's something quite different. That's actually called, it gets confusing with what's called testing and screening, but that's called PGTA or aneuploidy screening. So preconception genetic testing with a focus on aneuploidy, PGTA. What that involves is when you test an embryo to look at the DNA content on a much more kind of gross scale. So does it have the right number of chromosomes? A famous example is Down syndrome because Down syndrome babies have an extra copy of chromosome 21. But Down syndrome in the spectrum of things is a very mild chromosomal disorder and there are many different chromosomal disorders. You can have an extra copy of everything. You can have minus one copy of one chromosome plus one copy of another. You can have an embryo that has multiple issues, like it might have an extra 21, missing a 16 plus, you know, kind of a and 11, so it can have multiple issues in the one embryo. Aneuploid embryos become much more common. Aneuploid just means wrong number of chromosomes, become much more common as women get older. So over 35, about half the embryos we make are aneuploid. And that's why miscarriage rates go up as women get older. By the time you're 40, the chance of an embryo that results in a pregnancy subsequently resulting in a miscarriage is 50%. So 50% of pregnancies over 40 will miscarry and the vast majority are because of a chromosome, um, mis you know, unbalanced chromosome um, situation or aneuploidy. So um, certainly if you have a patient who's struggling to conceive or potentially a patient who has had multiple miscarriages and, and psychologically would find it difficult to undergo a further miscarriage and she's making lots of eggs and lots of embryos that you can test. And there doesn't seem to be much reason why this would keep yeah, happening. that's the reason this is happening. Then one very powerful technique is to use genetic testing or genetic screening to check each embryo and see if it's normal and only put back embryos that are normal because each embryo that's normal has a much higher chance of, of ultimately being a baby. So that's using genetic testing to help avoid a miscarriage or, or make sure that the baby will be healthy. Yeah. Whereas the first scenario we're talking about, checking for a particular disease in an embryo to make sure that a baby that's born doesn't have a genetic disease. I think it's really good to know these that there is this technology out there. We often think IVF is really just for fertility, but actually it has so many more uses. Yeah, and also another, you know, advantage of IVF, not for infertility, I suppose, is that if a couple do require IVF for whatever reason and they do have some embryos that are made and banked in the, in the freezer, you can use those embryos a couple of years down the track. So it could be that a patient who is seeking IVF help because they're looking for a, a genetic condition in a baby. Um, if they have a good egg count, if they're normally fertile, 
you know, there's there's every chance that they'd be able to have a few embryos in the freezer, so they might be able to have more than one healthy baby from the one treatment. So that's quite also means you don't have to go through the whole process again. And I, I guess that would be something that if you're a bit older, so you're in your 30s and you you've either you've tried to conceive and um, it hasn't worked, you've gone through IVF for infertility, you could then freeze your embryos so that as you get older and you want children, the embryos of using a younger egg. Yeah, and so that's where genetic testing can come into that. I call it euploid embryo banking or normal embryo banking. Normal because, than... Yeah, euploid, euploid, <laughs> euploid's the technical term, yeah. but normal embryo banking means that you've, you've put some embryos in the freezer and you know the chromosome content of those embryos is normal. So those embryos, while each one can still make mistakes when you put them back and it's not a guarantee of pregnancy, the chance is much, much higher than an untested embryo, especially in an older mum. And so if you are having your first baby, there is an argument if couples want to strategize because they, they desperately would like to have more than one child um, to put a few embryos in the freezer that have been genetically tested for the future yeah. because that's probably their best chance of achieving that goal. Thank you, Raylia, and thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with another new episode. In the meantime, for more information, you can go on the Women's Health Melbourne website or find them under the, on the socials under Women's Health Melbourne. For any future episode requests or any questions, you can contact us at podcasts at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au.